Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, and if you didn't do that, it'd be convenient for you to turn there now as I introduce the message for today. Yesterday, we commemorated the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Like me, I'm sure you have images imprinted indelibly in your mind of that day. Two planes crashing in to the Twin Towers at different times. A plane which had plowed into the Pentagon. We didn't have that on film live, but we saw the aftermath of that. And then another plane where the hijackers were hijacked by the people on the plane. Some brave patriots attacked them and they said, let's roll. And they took those enemies down that day. And that plane crashed in a field in Pennsylvania rather than wreaking greater destruction elsewhere. It was a terrible day in the life of our country. And it's commemorated in our hearts. 20 years. It's hard to believe it's been 20 years. As I thought about that, I thought about 30 years ago when Desert Storm began. And I drew in my own mind as a pastor parallels between those two events. The parallels had to do, and it might not surprise you what I say, with the attendance in the worship services of the two separate churches I pastored, one in Arlington in 1991 in January when Desert Storm began, and the other one here in this church. Immediately in Arlington, which was a church that was in decline, actually, in participation. On a good Sunday, the sanctuary which held about 600 people, we'd have maybe 250 maybe 300 people. That day it was packed with people the Sunday following. And that continued for a short while, but it soon subsided and everything went back to as it had been. Same thing here at Coronado. On that Sunday after 9-11 in 2001, attendance boomed in all the worship services. We only had two that I recall at that time. We may have had a Saturday night service. I can't remember, but certainly the Sunday morning service is burgeoned with numbers of people who came. I was curious as to how church attendance has changed, particularly since 9-11. What I discovered was that in the year 2001, there were 44% of Americans who claimed to be born-again Christians. Last year, that number had shrunk to 30%. 34, excuse me, 34%. The numbers of people who attended church on a weekly basis in 2001 was 41%. Last year in the U.S., that figure had fallen to 30%. Now let me be clear. Just because a person comes to a church or a place of worship doesn't make that person a Christian. I hope you know that. 
but we would hope that most of the people who come are at least seekers after God. I'll never forget a scene from the movie The Hiding Place based on the story written by Corey Ten Boom and how Corey and her sister Betsy and their father wanted to get sanctuary for an infant who was of Jewish descent. They had harbored a Jewish family and during their protecting that family and the safety of their home, a baby was born. The baby could be kept quiet for a while, but you know how it is. Babies get older and they get louder when they get older, don't they? And that was the case. So they called their pastor and asked him to come and visit with them. They told them about the situation, told him rather about the situation, and then proceeded to say, Pastor, you have several young children in your home. Would you and your wife be kind enough to take this child to protect this child's life? To their amazement, and they were stunned actually, their pastor said no, and he walked away. The daughters of Papa Tin Boom said, Papa, what was that all about? And he said, Dear daughters, just because a mouse is in the cookie jar does not make it a cookie. What he was saying is just because a man occupies a place like I occupy doesn't necessarily make that person a Christian, at least in the practical expression of that person's Christianity. So I'm not laboring under any illusion or delusion in thinking that everybody who comes to the place of worship here is a Christian. Doesn't make you a Christian, but it's a good sign that you're interested in spiritual things if you get up on a Sunday morning and come here for a moment like this. This last May, the Gallup pollsters, the ones that I gathered the information that I've shared with you thus far statistically, and we know that statistics are not always reliable, but what they said for the first time in the history of the United States of America, Sunday services are at the lowest peak and also membership has fallen below 50% in churches. The question is, what has happened? You would think that in times of stress, People would come, and they do in crisis moments, but what has happened? And I'm going to answer that question by spending a few moments talking about an historical figure. Many of you know his name, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Mr. Solzhenitsyn, interestingly, was born in 1918, the same year that a huge upheaval revolution, the Bolshevist Revolution, took place, ending and over three century reign of the Romanov dynasty, concluding with the assassination of Nicholas II, the Tsar, and all of his family. This man, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, was born into a devout Russian Orthodox home. From 1921 until 1928, when there was an all-out anti-church campaign led by the Bolshevists, his parents were steadfast in their refusal to deny 
the church, at least, and really to deny Christ. As he grew into his teen years, he was exposed to atheistic thinking, Marxism, Leninism, and he became an atheist, a Marxist, and a Leninist at the same time. By the way, you can't be a Marxist without being an atheist. That is the bottom line. And I'm going to read some things that he wrote in just a moment. He was in World War II. He was a captain in the Red Army. He led a company of fighters. And in a letter which he wrote during that time to a friend, a private letter, somehow or another, that letter fell into the hands of a person who snitched on him because in the letter he criticized Stalin, the leader of the Soviet Union, the leader of Russia, if you will. And the result of that was he was immediately stripped of his commission in the Red Army, and he was sent for eight years to a gulag, one of those remote areas that was bitter in climate, bitter in every way. It was during that time he developed cancer. And it was during that time that he faced his own mortality. His mind went back to what he had learned as a child. And he began to compare and contrast his parents' position in their religious faith with his position as a Marxist, Leninist, and an atheist. And a doctor in the cancer ward shared Christ with him. And he was, as we would describe it, born again. When he was released during what it was called a Khrushchev thaw, when pressure was lifted, he was released. And he had been in internal exile for a while. He published a book, his first novel, entitled A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, based on his experience in the Gulag. It met with wild acclaim in the hands of the rank-and-filed Russian, but it was hated by those in power. He continued to publish against the will of the government, but there was so much public sentiment in favor of him because he struck a chord in the hearts of the people that he would continue to publish. In 1974, he was stripped of his citizenship. He was sent out of the country in disgrace to West Germany. And two years later, he made his way to the United States of America. In 1970, he had won the Nobel Prize for Literature. In 1983, while in the United States, in 1990, he went back to his country when things changed there and he spent the rest of his life until 2008 there and he died there. But in 1983, he was awarded the Templeton Prize for religion. And more precisely, the Templeton Prize for Progress in Religion presented to a living person who's made an exceptional contribution to affirming life's spiritual dimension. I'm going to read some excerpts from that to get us to the place of understanding what has happened. Listen to some of these statements that he makes. He said, more than half a century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of older people 
offer the explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. That explanation was this. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. If I were asked today, he goes on to state in his acceptance speech, to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up 60 million of our people. That's Marxism for you. That's left-leaning behavior and philosophy. I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. And if I were called upon to identify briefly, and he was a great historian, by the way, the principal trait of the entire 20th century here too, I would be unable to find anything more precise and pithy than to repeat once again, men have forgotten God. In its past, Russia did not know a time when the social ideal was not fame or riches or material success, but a pious way of life. Russia, I may have misread, did not, in the past, Russia didn't know a time when the social idea was not fame or riches or material success, but a pious way of life. During the centuries of orthodox faith in our country, those centuries became part of the very pattern of thought and personality of our people the forms of daily life. Does this sound remarkably like our own country's history? The work calendar, the priorities in every undertaking, the organization of the week and of the year, faith was the shaping and unifying force of the nation. He went on to say about what happened under Tsar Peter in the 18th century, Tsar Peter forcibly imposed transformations which favored the economy, the state, and the military at the expense of the religious spirit and national life. And along with this lopsided Petrine enlightenment, Russia felt the first whiff of secularism. Its subtle poisons permeated the educated classes in the course of the 19th century and opened the path to Marxism. By the time of the revolution, faith had virtually disappeared in Russian educated circles and among the uneducated, its health was threatened. As he was concluding his speech there and receiving the Templeton Prize, he made a comment about us, the West. The West has yet to experience a communist invasion. This is 1983. Religion here remains free, but the West's own historical evolution has been such that today it is too, is experiencing a drying up of religious consciousness. Imperceptibly, through decades of gradual erosion, the meaning of life in the West has ceased to be seen as anything more lofty than the pursuit of happiness, a goal that has even been solemnly guaranteed by constitutions. The concepts of good and evil have been ridiculed for several centuries. Going back to Judah and Isaiah, Chapter 5, verse 20, 21, 22, among other things which the prophet speaks on behalf of God is that woe to those who call evil good and good evil. 
This is America today, isn't it? He went on to say this at the end of the speech. Um, it's a great speech. But at the end of the speech, this is what he says. Our life consists not in the pursuit of material success, but in the quest for worthy spiritual growth. Our entire earthly existence is but a transitional stage. This is a brilliant man. Listen to a man who had been an atheist, had been a communist. He says, our entire earthly existence is but a transitional stage. I'll fly away, probably was his favorite song. I don't know about that in the movement towards something higher. And we must not stumble and fall, nor must we linger fruitlessness on one rung of the ladder. What has happened is what happened in Israel and Judah. What happened there was the death of a nation. It has rejuvenated but just like all governments, man-run governments, people who have positions of authority many times are not about God at all. And we understand that in our country, we are in a position that is very precarious because of a failure to be people who really seek God. In this passage of Scripture that we look at today, what we discover is why a nation dies. And remember, the words that we're reading today were written to a group of people probably in the 15th century B.C. The man Moses spoke them, and then he wrote them. Or perhaps it was the other way around. And what we need to understand is the death of a nation is rooted in its forgetting God. That's the problem. It's our forgiving God, forgetting God. Not just people who don't know God, but we who know Him, not really getting to know Him. In Deuteronomy 4.9, this verse resonates in my own mind and heart today. Only give heed to yourself and to your soul diligently. Be a soul keeper is what he's saying. Do not hold anything back is what God would say to you today in keeping your own soul, keeping it diligently. Lest you forget, there's that word, the things which your eyes have seen and really the word translated things in Hebrew is the word words, lest you forget the words which your eyes have seen. Promises from God came true for the people of Israel as they were taken out of bondage and then they were protected and cared for. For 40 years, these people were those who had survived the long journey before entering into the promised land. He goes on to say, lest these things which your eyes have seen, your ears have heard, lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life and make them known to your sons and to your grandsons. Verse 12 of chapter 6, if you'll take a look at it. 6.12, 
says, Then watch yourself, lest you forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Isn't it interesting how quickly we forget our God? It is endemic to humanity in our fallenness, and we who know Christ still have a battle with our own selfishness. It's endemic for us to substitute something in our thought processes that supersedes our meditation upon God. We forget Him because we forget the things which we have seen with our eyes, namely the Word of God that became real in our personal lives, in our nation's life. This death of a nation in the history of Israel was not based on one act, but a series of smaller compromises. That's how people forget God. What were some of the things that vied for prominence in the minds and hearts of these people? Moses actually predicts the possibility. And let me just mention three that I see. Distractions. How were they distracted? Look at the last line of verse 3 of chapter 6. They were going to possess a promised land flowing with milk and honey. And then now, if you will look at verses 10 through 11 of chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig. That's a well which would collect rainwater, and how important is water to any group of people, but especially those who would live in an, an area which would have long stretches of no rain, vineyards and olive trees, which you did not plant, and you shall eat and be satisfied. Then watch yourself, lest you forget the Lord. Here's a distraction for us as Americans. Prosperity, or the pursuit of prosperity. In the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes what times will be like in the last days. Men will be lovers of themselves, and right after that, lovers of money. Lovers of myself lead to all the other possibilities. That's a distraction. Is that a distraction to you? How much money you've got in your IRA? How much money you've got in your bank account? Are you going to be able to buy that item you really see that you want? Do those things cause roadblocks in your progression spiritually? Have those things been things which have taken your mind off of the priority that God would have for us? We're going to look at that priority a little bit more as we go forward. These people were also lovers of pleasure, not just prosperity. Neil Postman, not a believer as far as I know, years ago wrote a book entitled Amusing Ourselves to Death. It was a critique of this secular writer of American culture and how we're amusing ourselves to death. And he made note of the fact that the word amuse comes from the root word muse, 
And to muse about something is to think about it, isn't it? To meditate on it. And when you put the A in front of it, it makes it negated. No thinking. And so part of the problem in America and in the church is we don't think. And when we think, we don't think biblically. We need to think biblically. We need to remember the words that we have seen come to pass. We need to be men and women who are committed to the Word of God. Distractions. Neglect often follows distractions. And in this passage of Scripture, actually, in chapter 5, the chapter before, look at chapter 5, verse 22. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain from the midst of the fire of the cloud and of the thick gloom. Talking about Mount Sinai like 39 or 40 years earlier when God gave the Ten Commandments. With a great voice, the words of the Lord spoke. And he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And it came about when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire that you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us His glory and His greatness. And we have heard His voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen today that God speaks with man, yet He lives. That would be, yet man lives. Now then, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer, then we shall die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? Go near, they're speaking to Moses, and hear all that the Lord our God says. Then speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you, and we will hear, and we will do it. What happens when we get distracted with the love of self, the love of money, the love of pleasure, what happens? Well, we neglect putting ourselves in a position to hear the voice of God. When we come to a place like this, we have every reason to expect that the person who is assigned the responsibility of opening the Scripture will rightly divide the Word of God and give us some food and give us challenge from the Word of God. Give us explanation about what's going on in our world. And the ever-living Word of God, it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, discerning the intentions and thoughts of the heart. We need that, but we are foolish if we limit our hearing from God in the Word from hearing someone like me open the book and teach it. We have to remember what Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It was Jesus' custom, obviously, to spend time meditating on God's word. It's our privilege if we know Christ. Is there anything that prohibits us legally from studying the Bible, reading the Bible? I don't think so. But we neglect it. And it happens subtly, and it takes over, and consequently, we forget God. God is pushed to the margin of our lives. 
And then idolatry follows. There's no mention of idolatry per se in the passage that we're looking at. But I'd like to ask you to hold your place here and turn to the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 2. And in Jeremiah chapter 2, beginning with verse 4, here's what the scripture says. And let me just pause and make note of the fact that Judah was in a very bad place in relationship to God. They had forgotten God for the same reasons that we did. Distractions leading to neglect, leading to idolatry. And idolatry, you don't have idols, I don't imagine, that you worship in your home, but anything that's put in the place of God or before God is an idol. That's the basic idea. Look at verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, What injustice did your fathers find in me, that they went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty? That's what had happened hundreds of years. When King David ascended the throne, it was 1010 B.C. When Judah fell, and it was just on the brink of falling. It was 586 B.C., 424 years. And the fathers of those who lived, they and their grandfathers, and on down the line, they had rebelled against, they had allowed distractions and neglect that followed distractions to lead to their idolatry. And they were warned over and over again before entering the promised land, don't take up with the false gods of the Canaanites. But nevertheless, they did. Now we know there were periods of renewal and revival. Thank God for that. And I'll get to that point. Hopefully I'll remember to talk about that before I finish today. But idols, look what go, the scripture goes on to say in verse 6. And they did not say this would be their fathers. Where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts, of pits, through a land of drought and of deep darkness, through a land that no one crossed and where no man dwelt? And I brought you into the fruitful land, God speaking now, to eat its fruit and its good things. But you came and defiled my land and my inheritance. You made an abomination. The priests did not say, Where is the Lord? The priests, they didn't even draw attention to the Lord. We have churches in America where people like you gather, and there's a very passing reference in many of them, and in some, no reference at all, crying out, where is the Lord? And those who handle the law did not know me. The teachers, the rulers also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal, the false god of Canaanites, and walked after things that did not profit. Look, the hierarchy, the prophets, the priests, and the kings, they did not lead the way. Therefore, I will yet contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your sons' sons, I will contend for across the coastlands of Katim, and that would be Cyprus, the island of Cyprus, and see, and send to Kedar and observe closely and see if there has been such a thing as this. Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? 
but my people have changed their glory. That would be God himself. For what that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves broken cisterns that hold no water. That's a picture of a condition of America in a large measure, and churches in America, believers in America idolatry. I read in preparation that in 19, excuse me, 2019, 10% of people read their Bible daily. 20%. Didn't even pick a Bible up. In Zechariah chapter 10, verse 2, there's a simple sentence that could easily be overlooked, but it has relevance to what I'm talking about. And this is what Zechariah the prophet says, the household gods utter nonsense. The household gods. Do you know how the average American watches television four hours a day? And that is mostly nonsense, what we get on TV. You stop to think about it. Mostly nonsense. How do we expect to know God and not forget God if we relegate our time of spending with Him to a meager amount compared to the time we invest with our household gods? And you say, well, I don't watch TV. Well, God bless you. But you may look at the Internet That's another screen that cries for attention. If that were not enough, most of us have a phone. And there may be a handful of people here who have a flip phone, but most of you have a computer in your hand, don't you? And there's so many things that we are exposed to there that divert our attention, their distractions, and cause us to neglect time alone with the Lord. So what is the root cause? of the death of a nation. It was the cause of the death of Israel, which died a death in 722 B.C., and then Judah, the southern kingdom, lasted a bit longer, 586 B.C., but they died. These were the people of God who died. Well, here's the good part of what I'm sharing with you. This part's hard for me to talk about, and it's hard for you to hear, perhaps, but we need to think about it together. If we're going to be part of the remedy that ails our country and our world. The death of a nation can be restrained if the nation, a large number, it doesn't take a whole lot of people to begin to fear the Lord. Do you remember when Elijah faced off with the prophets of Baal? And he thought he was the only one who was yet to bow the knee to worship Baal? Do you remember that? He won a big battle there on Mount Carmel. And then God spoke to him after the fact, and he said, Elijah, there are 7,000 people besides you who have refused to bow the knee to Baal. They still worship me. We don't know how many people populated Israel. I would just say a conservative guess would be probably 
a half million people to maybe three quarters of a million people. That's just my guess, based on statistics going forward to the time of Christ, several hundred years into the future. But nevertheless, there are people here in this church who fear the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord? How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. The commandments are delightful to the person who fears the Lord. And as I go back now to Deuteronomy, and if you are not there, please go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to look at two verses in chapter 5 to begin with, 28 and 29 of Deuteronomy chapter 5. And the Word of God says, The Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They have done well in all that they have spoken. Look, these people were good-intentioned. These people who ended up rebelling against God because they gave in to the distractions, the temptations, if you will, that led to the misuse of their time and led to their neglect of their relationship to God and then eventually led to idolatry. They were good-intentioned people. And verse 29 of chapter 5 says, Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God. Men, our sons, our grandsons, ladies, your sons, your grandsons, your daughters, men, your granddaughters, my daughters and my granddaughters, we're to teach them. We're to teach them by example the importance of knowing and following God. Let's go to the very famous passage, the Shema, verse 4 of this passage in chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. The heart is the place of the central focus of one's life. That's where we move from in our lives. Think, it has to do with the will, your thinking, and your emotions. Usually we isolate it with emotion, but it's more than that. When you study carefully the way the concept of the heart is referred to in the Bible, and with all your soul, this would be your personality, and with all your might, we give our best effort in loving the Lord our God. And what does Jesus say? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And what had he just said was his primary commandment? Love others as I have loved you. Love one another. So this is not some kind of ooey-gooey kind of love, sentimental love. It's practical in its, its, its expression. It has feet to it. And verse 6 says, And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently. There's that same concept again. Again, God only has to say one thing one time for it to be relevant. But when He repeats it, you know He's very, very serious about it. 
You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, when you rise up. What does this suggest? A lifestyle. Adults, a lifestyle. A lifestyle that is centered in Christ. He is your life. And you show it to your children. You don't just talk about it. You'd show it to them, verse 8. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And this would be like a little box, a phylactery, and there'd be a piece of leather, and they would be bound to your hand. And if that were not, as if to say, what you do should be an exact picture of loving God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. And he goes on to say, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. By Jesus' time, this had become institutionalized. It meant nothing because the people would wear these little phylacteries and the Shema was probably in the hand box and on the frontals. And, but what God's saying is what you do matters, but what you think matters probably even more because you want to have the truth in your mind, not just doing it because people can do good works which are of no value. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house. In other words, in our houses, we should be men and women who seek the Lord and not wait till we come to the house of God to seek the Lord, but we seek the Lord. If we hope to be part of the solution to the problem that exists in our nation, in our world, and on your gates. So we're to be private in our homes, teaching our children, leading our family, and public, too, in the community. We're not to be ashamed. We don't get ugly, spirited with people, but we tell the truth about who the one true God is in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the only thing that will alter the future. The only, only thing. This is what Solzhenitsyn said in his acceptance speech. It is here that we see the dawn of hope. Listen, for no matter how formidably communism bristles with tanks and rockets, no matter what successes it attains in seizing the planet, it is doomed never to vanquish Christianity. The Christian faith will never go down. Countries will because people in them who are Christians fail to give proper attention to their relationship with the Lord and therefore become salt and light and therefore are used by God to introduce people who are like Solzhenitsyn. What was he? He was an atheist, he was a Marxist, and he was a Leninist. But God used someone, a doctor in a cancer ward and probably other believers to introduce him to Christ. Tremendous to think about what has happened in that regard. So is it too late for America? I don't think it is. I'm a, a man who believes in the power of God to bring revival. I read last week about a thousand young people in, of all places, Seattle, Washington, gathering in a park and having a meeting, and it was led, I, I'm sorry, I couldn't find the article after I had read it, 
I just know it happened. I know the setting of it. I couldn't remember the man's name, but the man was leading them in singing songs to the Lord, but also in teaching the truth about Christ. And it seems that not only in Washington, but in lots of places, there is the beginning of revival. At least the scent of revival is in our country. And those who are involved in that, and actually the columnist who wrote about this for the Secular Peace Newsweek said that they are hoping for the, to a repeat of the great awakenings in the history of our country. The first great awakening in the 18th century, the second in the late and early, late 18th and early 19th century. So what we know is the Lord still is the Lord. And he will, if we as his people, we will come before him and humble ourselves and fall on our faces before God individually and collectively. Then God will hear from heaven. And he will, based on our commitment to repentance and to getting back in a proper relationship with God, do what he would have us to do. I'd like to close by reading the last three verses of our text. Deuteronomy 6.13, You shall fear only the Lord your God. The fear of man brings a snare, the Bible says. We can't fear men, only the Lord our God. And you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. For the Lord your God is in the midst of you. He's a jealous God. He's a generous God, isn't he? Think about all that we've read that he gave to these people who had no real claim of their own. They never would have had what they got had it not been for the generosity of God. Our God is a loving Father, a generous Father, but he has a limit when it comes to his patience with his people. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. Wow. Those are strong words, aren't they? But we need to understand this is the word of God. And there is hope for us if we humble ourselves before the Lord and confess that we have in some way or another marginalized him and in effect forgotten him. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name that you would forgive us and that you would equip us and that we would be men and women after your own heart. We would have all the Shema on our heart, Lord, the Word of God. And we would love you and we would live in a way that gives glory to you and a witness to you. Please, Lord, please, Help us be part of the solution to what troubles our country and the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Before you leave today, I have a bit of sad news. One of our members passed away on Friday, Frank Dominguez. Many of you know Frank, and Frank was a deacon in our church, active in our church. Please pray for his son. He survived by his son, Josh, who's 21 years of age, a young man. And we just pray that God will watch over him and help him to develop into the man God wants him to be. So be praying. We don't know what the arrangements are yet, 
for the funeral, but we will be posting them on our website. God bless you.